Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hello and welcome to Saving Lives in Slow Motion. Today, I'll be talking about medical errors. Now, it's a pretty trenchant topic, this, because a lot of people will have been affected by it. And as a doctor who's also been a patient and had relatives in hospital, um, I can see how medical errors are almost part and parcel of medical practice it's very very difficult to eliminate medical error altogether but it is such an important thing to try to eliminate that I thought it was worth spending 10 minutes just talking about the types of medical error why they happen what we can all do to reduce the possibility of them as practitioners and as patients and also to go through some common examples of medical errors so where I'd like to start with this is is an anecdote that uh, a good old friend of mine told me who I've actually known since my first ever job in medicine and he shall remain nameless but he remembers when he was a medical student that there was a um, a professorial ward round and the ward was really busy and the professor that uh, my friend was shadowing decided to help the nurses out because there was lots of sickness on the ward in terms of staff illness and the nurses were short so he thought he would help out by doing the drug round so if you've ever been an inpatient in hospital you'll know that the nursing team come round at set times during the day to administer medication and Back in those days, there used to be little these little sort of cardboard trays where all the medication was laid out for each patient on a on a drug trolley that used to sort of go round the ward. And the professor administered the medication to all the patients on the ward. And then when he got to the end of the round, there was one set of medication left over. So he'd given every single patient the other patient's drugs, the wrong drugs, effectively. And... Um, thankfully nothing happened no one came to harm but that's a really good example of where 
good intentions end up inadvertently leading to a medical error, in this case a prescribing error, or in fact not prescribing error because the prescription presumably was correct, it's just it was more of a drug administration error. So we can come on to look at how we can minimise those kinds of errors, um, but the shocking thing is, is that in terms of the actual cause of death in the United States of America, when you look at all of the reasons like stroke or Alzheimer's disease or um, respiratory illness, actually medical errors is the third commonest cause nowadays, which to me is staggering. So it's a really big issue. So if we just think about the actual categories of medical errors, one of the biggest ones, and one that I've seen time and time again discussed when we're trying to learn from medical errors, is problems with communication. Now that in itself is a huge area. Communication is something that we all do all the time. There's lots of modes of communication, predominantly in medicine. Um, the difficulty is everything happens in such a rush sometimes that you know proper communication is really important and and you know especially in an emergency setting but also in the setting of things that are routine so one of the cases that really sticks in my mind in um recent years is the case of Elaine Bromley who um, was married to Martin Bromley, an airline pilot, and she went in for a routine sinus operation in 2007. And into the procedure, shortly into the procedure, it was obvious that she couldn't hold her airway and her oxygen levels were dipping. And very sadly, eventually she ended up in intensive care and passed away um, within the next 12, 13 days. Now, initially, the hospital said, we're really sorry these things happen." And it wasn't really until her husband Martin um, approached the hospital and asked them to investigate what had happened that they found that in the theatre, which were full of doctors and nurses, when it became apparent that there was something wrong, although there were emergency airway kits available and all the equipment was to hand, um, the procedure that should have potentially been performed to actually allow... Elaine to oxygenate wasn't. And afterwards, when theatre staff were interviewed, particularly the nurses, were very surprised that this never happened. And there's something in there about having the courage to speak up, um, especially when you've got someone in the room who you think knows more than you. And I, I, I've had this scenario myself where, um, you know, a junior doctor or a, a medical student will often point something out and I'll think, oh yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Um, one of the things which really stays with me from that um, is Martin Bromley, Elaine's husband, actually set up something called the Clinical Human Factors Group, along with a bunch of medics, to make patient safety paramount to stop these things from happening again. So he's actually a, an airline pilot by trade. And apart from making sure communication is clear, I mean, we all hear of stories, don't we, where someone goes in for an operation and they've had the wrong leg operated on or someone takes a verbal instruction and actually they get the dose of something wrong because they heard, I don't know, five instead of nine or something like that. But um, one of the quotes that I love from Martin Bromley 
is this, and what he says is, we are all wrong, no matter how good we are. And I think if you can hold that in your mind as someone who's a practitioner, you know, because I, I, I tend to find errors happen when you're rushing or when you're being distracted um, or someone's asking you to do more than one thing at once. And that's when communication can lapse because people aren't concentrating or they're trying to do too many things at once. And so you, you'll be able to read a bit more about Elaine's case in the show notes. But how do we make communication better? Well, it's a really good point. I mean, one of the things that seems to help in procedures, particularly, are checklists. And surgical checklists were introduced a few years ago, and there's no doubt that they've improved safety. And that way, the whole team has to have input um, and two-way communication in terms of a briefing that everyone is involved in. So, you know, checklists, I think, are great. And also, having the courage to ask if you're not sure you know rather than this kind of old school culture of you know just getting on with it if you're not sure it's always best to double check things and it goes very much for patients as well so one of the things I tend to do and a lot of my patients do is they summarize at the end of a consultation just to make sure that we're both on the same page certainly another thing that can help with communication is of course it doesn't always have to be spoken if um, a practitioner is giving information to a patient, I often recommend sending links or writing things down as well, just for reinforcement and clarity. So I've spent quite a chunk of that on communication because actually it feeds in to almost all the other areas of medical error, which include human factors you know things like um, a lack of knowledge for example um, which is unfortunate and reflects poor training but again that links into communication you know why is a particular person lacking knowledge is it because there's there are issues in the team around communication and learning poor documentation is also another area where there's scope for error so inadequately labelling um, drugs, for example, or writing down um, medical notes that are just not accurate enough or detailed enough, or in some cases, there are no notes at all. And what that means is it just, again, it's, it's in a way, it's a form of communication. It makes things very difficult for other team members when they're looking in the notes to find out what's going on with a patient. Just on a side note, I think this has become much more difficult in hospital medicine because of the way that shifts work and often you've got one team member for a, you know who's on for 12 hours and then there's handover and they hand all the patients over to another team member for 12 hours and then another and so there's a, a bit of a loss of continuity and of course in the olden days where people used to work you know 56 hours or something over a weekend was completely inhuman but the only advantage of that was is that you knew what was happening to the patients over that that, that you know the course of those days so I don't know what the answer to that is but handover is really key and again that comes back to good communication so other factors include things like a lack of staffing um, in terms of making sure that there are adequate numbers of staff available now that's difficult at the moment in the NHS in certain sectors because of recruitment and because of burnout 
And we know in any job, if you are absolutely at your limit or there's a lack of workforce effectively, meaning that everyone is stretched to the max, you're much more likely to make a mistake. So that's one which relies on the system um, working properly. Then there are technical failures. Now, these are things um, where medical devices fail or equipment fails. And occasionally you'll see that there are big cases, for example, breast implants. So many of you would have heard of PIP breast implants and the, the harm that came to many patients that had them implanted after breast cancer surgery. And a lot of these things don't come to light until after they've happened because obviously at the time um, the implants were deemed safe and clearly um, they, they weren't. And you can have a look at um, that case again in some links in the show notes. Just while we're talking about harm, I mean, of course, that's the whole point about reducing medical error because medical errors lead to harm, you know, potentially. Now, most of the time, you know, it can be something very minor and the harm is minimal. But, you know, as a doctor, your first and foremost duty is first to do no harm. It's one of the tenets of medicine. And I think... Um, this is one of the reasons why we really need to take medical errors very seriously, not just prescribing drugs or procedures, but just the whole thing in general. What can we all do to make things safer? Well, I think as a patient, I would say asking for clarity and explanations until you're satisfied that you understand clearly what's going on um, I've recently been a concerned relative you know uh, in, in a hospital and and even being medical actually there were times where I thought hang on I'm not really sure what's going on here can you just say that again so no one's going to mind if you ask that the second thing is um, a bit more formal uh, a version of what I've just said which is about consent and consent is when you as a patient agree for a procedure or something to go ahead it can be as simple as a blood test or it can be um, a knee replacement or whatever. But again, when you sign forms, um, make sure that you read everything on there and do ask if there's any question about anything. Obviously, things like blood tests are just verbal consent. You know, um, no one's going to get you to sign a form for that necessarily. And from the point of view of clinical teams, you know, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, pharmacists, what do we do when things go wrong? Well, firstly, we feel terrible because no one wants anything to go wrong. And as someone who, who looks at complaints quite a lot, um, I have to say more than most of them are to do with communication. Um I guess the next group is to do with when something didn't happen quickly enough, you know, a delay in something, whether that's a referral or getting something sorted out quickly enough. Those things are really challenging, um, particularly in the current climate that we're in. And I think, you know, what we do certainly at, at our end is we look 
closely at the the actual event and then we we learn from it so they used to be called significant events um, or critical events and um, you know if there was a near miss you know say someone had sent the wrong prescription to the wrong patient uh, for example uh, why we, we we look at a sort of a, a root cause analysis you know why did that happen you know was it because someone was rushing was it because there were two patients with very similar names you know and then that gets fed back into improving that process or procedures so policies and procedures in organizations are often the backbone to prevent um, medical errors if you're passionate about it i would suggest that you get involved uh, locally either with your patient group at your gp surgery or at your local hospital and there are patient safety organizations again i will post links to this in the show notes if it's of interest to you because one of the ways we learn is is via feedback and you know i often get asked by friends or family or people that i know um, about things that have gone wrong with their medical care elsewhere nothing to do with you know myself treating them because i'm not their doctor and they often ask me what what I would do, and what I what I say is, look, you've got to let them know. Just why don't you just write them an, a polite letter and put it in writing, and just say, look, you know, this happened on X Y Z date, and I'm just letting you know so that you can let me know why it happened, and so that it doesn't happen again. And genuinely, I think medical organisations like to hear those things because that's the only way that we can improve what isn't helpful is just you know random rantings and pylons on social media just saying how bad a particular service is without anything specific or or focused and it's always best i think to try and make headway with the organization privately before resorting to things like that because you know it does nothing but um, you know, reduce uh, already flagging morale um, amongst staff who are doing their best. Um, so you know, no one wants to, no one wants medical errors, and no one does them on purpose. Okay, so that was a quick tour of medical errors. As I said, um, there are links in the show notes. I think particularly Elaine Bromley's case um, is really powerful for me. Um, in terms of of learning, in terms of culture and in terms of what we're trying to do as medics. Thank you so much for your feedback um, so far. Do let me know if there are any topics that you want to hear about. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter um, and on LinkedIn. And thank you again for listening. I do hope to be with you again soon. And in the meantime, do stay well. Take care. (laughs) 